Drilling fluids touch just about everything in the drilling process. We're here to deconstruct the drilling process and drilling fluid concepts to provide a deeper understanding of our industry. In each episode, we'll share information, talk to interesting people, and maybe share a few stories along the way. Welcome to The Flow Line, a production of AES Drilling Fluids, brought to you by Matt Offenbacher and Justin Gautier. And we're back. Welcome to another episode of The Flow Line. I got it working, Matt. For the listeners out there, we kind of have a running joke about these little sand disc cards that we record on. And I told Matt, I said, Matt, we don't need yours today because I have mine that I left in here from last time. And I went to hit record and said card protected, but it was locked. And so we're good, Matt. Yes. <laughs> good. How are you today? Good. I mean, I assume you press record, so we're running right, <laughs> yeah. right along for a Monday, right? <laughs> yeah, we are. No, Mondays are always fun. Lots going on. And we're in the process of, you know, packing up the office and getting ready to move on down the road. So it's, I don't know about your office, Matt. Well, I'm willing to guess that you still have a lot of stuff in your office, but I last week brought a big hockey bag. I emptied it out and now I have binders and books and a lot of stuff that I, when I looked at my office, I didn't realize how much stuff I had until I started putting it together in bags and boxes. And I've really come to the realization that I need to go full minimalist on my next office. Like I'm going to have a notepad and a pen and that's it. Like I'm hoping that happens. Are you going to try that or no? Because I know you're a paper guy. Yeah, I got too many references and stuff. I mean, look, my office is a mess 80% of the time. And (laughs) most people don't dare walk in because I organize papers on the floor. And yeah, (laughs) so I'm not even going to try. I just like I was pushed to move into this bigger office and I was just like, it's just going to be a bigger mess. I yeah. just have more freedom to, <laughs> you're to like, leave more things out. You're like, is it a goldfish that'll grow to the size of its, it doesn't matter how big, well, Grant, I'm sure there's like at some point it won't grow any larger, but it'll only grow to the size of its bowl. It's kind of like your office. You could have like a 600 square foot office and you'd somehow manage to right, fill it up. just be crap everywhere. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, but we're excited about the new place. Lots more light. Well, I'm excited about your guys' lab. Yeah. It's going to be off the chain, if you will. Yes. Very woke vocabulary, Matt. I like that. Yeah. Moving offices. Yeah, it's going to be exciting, right? We've been in this building now for a long time. And if anyone out there, especially mud engineers, have come through here, you know, whether it be training or obviously some of our customers have come visit the lab, a lot of good memories in here. And and I don't think it's going to be, you know, quite right around the corner. I think maybe April, May or whatever. But at some point here within the near future, we'll be moving. So there's a lot of excitement happening in our office right now. Lots of stuff to look forward to. Yeah, it's in the works. And we have a media room here, but we have a dedicated media room in the new place with yeah. a switch that when the light comes on, it says, I think it either says on air or in use or something. Really? It's like, yeah. It's I very, didn't even know about that. Very official. Yes. Oh, that's exciting. Well, hopefully we can take some good pictures and create some quality content and information for everyone out there. But for today's episode, Matt, this was, again, something that, It's a topic that everyone's familiar with, and that's, you know, crude oil, more specifically the price of crude. And I'm going to, you know, do full disclosure. I, by no means, am an economist. I read headlines. I read articles, did a little bit of stuff in school. But at the end of the day, I think it's important for us to elaborate on some of the daily topics that, you know, folks that are regardless in drilling fluids, whether you're in engineering, we're all tied to oil and gas prices to some degree. So I thought, I mean, you thought it'd be a good idea to kind of go through, you know, Brent versus W2I and kind of go into the sort of what makes up the price of oil, some things to look out for, and then ultimately tie it back to like, what does it mean for us as drilling fluid folks? Yeah. I mean, it's one of those, a lot of it comes into conversation, right? We check the price of oil and hope we still have jobs tomorrow. There's more to it 
you know, in the day to day, especially with what's going on geopolitically right now and all that, where I thought it'd be interesting just to talk about these things because they do affect us. Right. And sometimes we see how fast it happens and sometimes it doesn't seem to happen as quickly, but they're all factors in what's going on. So why not just try and educate a little bit? Once again, we're by no means experts, Yeah. but we think that we could go through a few things that would give you an idea of sort of how some of this turns without being exhaustive. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. And so you mentioned it a little bit before we started recording, but when anyone talks about the price of oil, you know, in the office or out in the field or, you know, whether over lunch, oh, what's the price of oil? A lot of folks, you know, at least from in, in my network, it's you just automatically assume WTI, but, you know, there's Brent. And so how would you describe the differences between the two? And what does Brent mean? And what does WTI mean? So, I mean, these are kind of their benchmarks, right? So keep in mind that oil gets refined into different things and, you know, that's all going to vary. But so like Brent is North Sea crude oil. So it's kind of a benchmark more related to Middle East, Africa, Europe, and it's more of a global standard. Right. Focusing on kind of like diesel and gasoline. And traditionally Brent, like at least through my career, and this is not always true, has been more expensive than WTI, where I would hear somebody say, oh, hey you know, price of oil is over, you know, $55. And I'd go look at WTI and it would be $53. Be like, what are you talking about? Yeah. There was no, they were talking about the price of Brent and overseas it's much more of the conversation starter, right? Mm -hmm. Here in the US, WTI or West Texas Intermediate, more focused on US fields, which are landlocked. Now, granted, part of this swing is all this North Sea stuff, you can basically load directly on a boat and send it anywhere. Right. WTI has to go through transfer terminals, it may need to be trucked, and it may not necessarily just go straight into a pipeline. So transportation cost is more of a factor, mm -hmm. generally. Granted, if you've heard, the Permian has put in a few pipelines the past couple of years. <laughs> yeah. But lighter, easier to flow and refine, and WTI is, it tends to focus a bit more on gasoline. But the prices are different. Yes, they're related, right? If the price of one is up, the other one is probably going to go up. Mm -hmm. But there are certainly factors where at any given time, one may, may be worth more than the other and vice versa. Right, right. And so from my understanding, WTI normally trades at a discount for the reason that you said it's we're landlocked here in the US and typically it has to be transported obviously to the coast to be able to do you know global transport, but along the coast is where a lot of the refineries are. So to get it there and everything else. So again, which is from my understanding is why it's traded at a discount. So there is a spread and it's generally not major. And, you know, I mean... What would be some determining factors, if you're aware of any, like why the spread would widen or if it would get close? Is it just like overall ability to, like, is it production rates or do you know? I mean, I think those are probably factors beyond my understanding, although, yeah. you know, you could guess how much of it is offshore production versus onshore in the U.S. Because WTI, like oil out of the Gulf of Mexico is still benchmarked to WTI. Right. Right. So just I could see some of those ratios and. I mean, keep in mind from a transportation perspective, well, we talk about all these new wells we put in. There's a ton of production that comes out of what are called stripper wells, right? They produce a few barrels a day. You know, they don't go to a pipeline. They go into a truck that takes them somewhere that loads them. I mean, and think about, you know, this isn't WTI, but think about the price that Canada gets because is it heavy oil that has to be, you know, because the pipeline isn't available is it sent by rail? That costs more. Just, yeah. there's factors beyond just the nature of what it breaks down into in a refinery. And then there's the refinery part too. Great point. So with production, you know, it's interesting because, and again, maybe folks already knew this, but 
we don't automatically use what we produce, right? So if you're producing 10 million barrels a day, it doesn't mean that you're actually, and you may, may not be, but it doesn't mean you're consuming exactly what you're producing. So most folks that if they're sort of paying attention to what's going on, you keep hearing about, you know, storage levels or inventory levels. Matt, can you kind of describe what that is with regards to oil, you know, oil price and all that? Yeah, well, I mean, so keep in mind, everybody's kind of, and we'll talk about this a bit more, but we're looking at where things are headed, right? So like, I think I can get X dollars for a barrel of oil today, or by the time I say it's okay to drill this well, and I put the money out thinking I have a good investment. And it's because these are actually contracts for the future, if you will, as far as what we're actually, you know, gonna willing to pay. But in storage, and there are these huge storage terminals, and on ships and all kinds of things where if the inventory or the amount stored in those tanks starts going down faster than it's replenished, well, that's probably a sign that people are using more of it, which is an indication that there will be, there's strong demand and that people want to drill more wells to keep those tanks full or at least refill them at the proper rate. So we think, you know, the price is likely to go up. Right. And then, you know, when the inventory starts to build, you say, oh, you know, demand is slowing. And I mean, this could be the price of oil, but there's other refined products, gasoline, that kind of thing, where you can see the same effect. And some of this stuff is even seasonal, right? So yeah. inventories may build, but inventories may build because it's a different season of the year, you know, those kinds of things. So anyways, it's not only watching those changes, but also watching those changes as they vary seasonally according to, you know, year on year averages. Yeah, no, because there's what they call a drawdown season. So a lot of times they'll, you know, draw a bunch down. I think it's during the summertime, something through like maybe March through October or something. But anyway, it could be wrong. But yeah, it's just like anything, right? Like especially, you know, gas is, you know, during the winter times you use a bunch because of heating. And so you're typically drawing down and then in the summertime when they're producing a lot of gas, it'll go up. And so it's interesting if you go on sort of the, say the EIA's website and you can pull up probably about a trillion graphs, but you can really see that the cyclical nature of our business, not only in, you know, oil prices, but even just like consumption and production of just about everything. It's kind of interesting. If you're a data person, I encourage you to go on the EIA's website because there's so much to look at. And with storage in the U.S., you know, to kind of give some context. So, you know, before when the whole world shut down, obviously like storage levels got came up and you know, no one was using oil and then prices dropped and then all of a sudden demand comes roaring back. Well, inventories have been drawn down, drawn down, drawn down. And now I think we're at like a 10 year low here in the U S and even throughout the whole world, there's quite a bit of, you know, inventories have been drawn down. So we're, you know, pretty low, but and before we started recording, I was curious, like, well, when's the last time we've gotten this low? And I didn't realize, but I guess in 2008, we were down. So in the U.S. right now, we're sitting at about 416 million barrels in our strategic petroleum reserve. And then in 2008, we were actually down to 245 million. I didn't know that. But anyway, so we're not quite as like historically low, but we're definitely low compared to normal. And then, you know, it's funny. So 2008 comes along. We draw down a bunch. Well, then all of a sudden the shale revolution. And then by 2017, we were at 527 million barrels. So again, you know, shale revolution was helpful, but here we are now at like a low compared to where we've been in a decade. So it'll be interesting to see where things go from here. And that's why, you know, people are drilling and hopefully we're going to be able to produce more, but we'll see. Yeah. And, you know, just the whole, like there are these huge storage locations. What's interesting, some people follow vessels, right? So one thing you'll find out with these commodity traders Great book, The World for Sale by Javier Bloss, also a good follower on Twitter. He's with Bloomberg now, but he just talks about commodity traders. And it's like, you know, the notion that you could actually 
fill like you know think of a tanker that holds two million barrels of oil. Well, if I have fifty of them, I've got quite a lot of storage just floating around in the ocean, waiting to be diverted to a place where it gets the best price. Mm-hmm. But Cushing is probably one you most people have heard of in Oklahoma. I think it's got seventy-seven million barrels of storage. So a lot of folks focus on what is the inventory in Cushing as like a U.S. WTI indicator. And so anyways, Cushing is, maybe you've heard that term, but it's located in Cushing, Oklahoma. Yeah, yeah. And it's a bunch of tanks. And there's actually like a price out of Cushing, right? Because everything centralizes to there. So what does it cost there? Because then it's your own cost outside of there. It sort of centralizes what people are paying. That's right. Good call. And actually, so interestingly, I didn't know that there was a bunch of oil sitting out in the water. And I don't know how much there is currently, mm-hmm. but we had Mark Rosano come do a little presentation for the group a few weeks ago. And he was talking about a lot of this. And again, a lot of it was you know way, not way over my head, but I couldn't quite articulate exactly what he was saying. But what I got from it was people didn't realize just how much storage you could actually store in the water. And right now, apparently there's a quite a bit. So anyway, yeah, it would be interesting to know how much is out there, but I have no idea. And I don't think he mentioned the number, but yeah. So you don't just, you know, it's not just underground and in tanks. You actually can store a bunch in the water, which I didn't know. Let's talk about Henry Hub. Matt, what is Henry Hub? So kind of shifting for gas. I think, I think once again, we're trying to figure out a price at a central point that everybody can kind of index to. So Henry Hub is in Louisiana and it's basically a location where you would say the price, you know, per thousand cubic feet of gas at Henry Hub, and then you figure out the logistics from there, right? But on the New York Mercantile Exchange, you know, that's what the benchmark is calculated at for pricing. And then it's also a good indicator for global natural gas prices. If you think about all the LNG terminals that are being built all around the Gulf Coast, it acts as sort of an indicator for that. So for you know, kind of the Gulf Coast, it's and it has been kind of the standard for the US predominantly because of its location, also near lots of petrochemical areas that would use it for feedstock and so on and so forth. Mm. But there's a couple of these. So like probably, you know, the other one that is relatively new would be the Waha hub. If you think of this is actually in the Permian Basin. And when you think about all the pipelines that were built, you heard this thing called, what is our takeaway capacity? How do we get all this stuff to market? Mm-hmm. Well, this is able to transport, you know, natural gas to Mexico and a few other places. And you can actually look at the trend. You know, you heard all this stuff about flaring and the price of gas going negative in the Permian. And it was, there was no way to get rid of it. Yeah. And it was a huge problem. And the Waha hub and basically the, the pipelines that all kind of converge there to help bring it all to market have sort of changed all that. So now you'll hear, okay, what is the Henry hub price? What is the Waha hub price? And then sometimes even, you know, what is the difference? Do they track together or is there kind of a divergence because LNG is doing better versus exporting to Mexico or some other place directly through a pipeline? And that's another one. And then, you know, kind of the last of the the gas kind of transfer sites, if you will, or where you find is called TTF, Dutch Tidal Transfer Facility. So this is in the Netherlands. It's a virtual transit point for gas. Hmm. But this is for Europe. And if you remember, if you know, this European winter, the wind didn't blow, the sun didn't shine, and they were paying hundreds of dollars Ugh. versus you know us paying four bucks. And so the interesting thing there, of course, is all of these liquid natural gas tankers were racing out to go over there because of what a huge price you know premium they could get. 
Yeah. But anyways, you know, liquefaction of natural gas is becoming more and more of a thing where it can be transported globally. Yeah. And, you know, that's obviously changed versus even a number of years ago. But the idea is, okay, those are some places where you get a benchmark if you were trying to look this up and you could see, you know, are they going up or down? And maybe even in relationship to one another, is that an indicator of demand somewhere else or a change with what's going on in the Ukraine right now, of course, yeah. there's lots of talk about what's going on at the, you know, TTF. And, you know, is it that the U.S. will export lots of liquefied natural gas, you know, if there's a shortage over there, all that kind of stuff. So anyways, I feel like that's just sort of an alphabet soup, you know, Brent, WTI, Henry Hub, Waha Hub. So we're talking about oil and gas prices at a certain point or on a certain index that everybody sort of centralizes around as an indicator. Yeah. But it doesn't necessarily mean that's what everyone is paying. Right. No, yeah. that's a good, and which kind of brings us into hedging. Yes. Right. So again, perfect segue here. So, you know, I'm sure people have been like, oh, futures are trading at this, spot prices are that. Can you describe what the differences are starting with, you know, say what futures are? So futures are basically the future price of something, right? So- Let's say oil's at 75 bucks a barrel and somebody says, you know what? I think it's going to go up. I think fundamentally there's a bunch of upward pressure. What I want to do is I want to lock in, you know, I bet I could sell some of the rights to sell it at $80 because I think it's going to be at 85 in a few. So you can basically trade and bet on yourself in some ways. Yeah. But what a lot of folks do, so you hear about these oil and gas companies. They lost, you know, billions due to hedges. Well, it's not that they actually lost money. It's they don't just sit around and wait for the price of oil to go up or down. They try and protect themselves. Right. So what they'll do is they'll sell a contract in the future and say, look, they might cover a certain percentage of their production. You know, normally it's not a percentage, it's a number, but let's say they're 10,000 barrels. They're going to say, look, I'm going to set out a contract to sell that at $5 more than today's price, or usually it's a discount, Right. I think the oil, price of oil may go down or be volatile. I'm going to sell it at 70 in a month. Mm-hmm. But now the price goes up to 80 and everybody says, look, you locked in that price, but look at all the money you lost because you didn't let... But the flip side is if the price of oil goes to 65, you're still selling it at 70. Right. Right. So it helps kind of level out the volatility and that helps for long-term planning because you know drilling projects take a while and require investment. So... It just helps limit all the ups and downs, but you're pay- placing a bet, right? Yeah. No, it's interesting because especially during, there was a lot of conversation about hedging during this, you know, the pandemic. Yours, quite a few folks that hedged and, you know, looked like geniuses when oil was, you know, negative 20 for that split second. But I would say, you know, just through my observation, a lot more companies hedge that than don't. And maybe I'm wrong, but there are some, like ConocoPhillips, for example, in their earnings report, they're always touting about their non-hedging company. They don't want to hedge. They don't chase the price of oil. And arguably for them, it's worked. But it really just depends on the business model. Every company is different, has different investment objectives. But it is a good way if done correctly, which again, no one can actually accurately predict the price of oil. So it's, again, it's kind of a gamble. And you, know, you use as much data as possible to try and predict whether or not it's a good bet. But it can help, like you said, really just sort of protect against so much volatility, which, you know, there's I know one of my customers did and thankfully they did to get them through the pandemic. But now they're kind of in a bit of a bind because I think they hedged at like forty five dollar oil for a pretty considerable amount of production. And now oil is close to 100. And so, you know, but they're doing really well and they've managed to navigate it. And like you said, normally you're not hedged 
hundred percent of your production at a certain price. It's kind of like different tiers. And again, probably pretty more, quite a bit more complex than I'm describing, but yeah. But I mean, you'll even see, you know, interesting point airlines will do this, right? Like they'll lock in the price of fuel ahead of time. So they're starting to do that for fear that it's going to go up right now. Interesting. And, And the thing is you don't necessarily have to agree to buy at that price. Sometimes you can just buy the rights, right? Which is cheaper but, you know, if you decide to go back to the open market, you've got to pay a fee for basically having mm. the opportunity to have a guaranteed price. But anyways, that gets super complicated. It's <laughs> yeah. way beyond anything I understand. And even if we had somebody on, I don't think any of us would understand what they were saying. <laughs> yeah. But the idea is, is managing volatility and for really capital intensive type things, it can make sense. But it could also mean that let's say I'm an operator, I produce 100,000 barrels a day and I hedged all of it and the price of oil goes up. Well, the only way for me to make more money beyond my hedges might be to actually add more rigs, Mm. even if, uh, you know what I mean? Like, because of the premium you gain, there may be incrementally some point where you say, you know what, I need to add another rig because it's completely unhedged production. Yeah. And then I'm free and clear to make more, my cash grows exponentially from here. Yeah. So it's not just locking in those prices. It's okay. I've got my stuff that sort of kept me safe. Everything outside of that, I need to be aggressive on right now while the getting's good. Or mm-hmm. that's a good point to add. Absolutely, and you know, of course, more rigs equals hopefully more mud to sell. So that's hopefully obviously a good thing. Let's talk about OPEC and OPEC Plus because they have a large, I guess, influence on oil prices. Yes. So OPEC is the Organization of Petroleum Exporting Countries, and they produce about thirty-seven percent of the oil supply. And then there's some non-members. There's about ten countries including Russia, they call OPEC plus, and you kind of add those in and that's about half of the world's production. They set quotas. So it's a cartel. They all come in, they agree on what's fair for each one of them to produce in an effort to make an economical price for these countries that are rich in these resources to profit, you know, enough to do what they want to do. And they'll, you know, you'll hear about, well, they're going to cut production or you know, oh, they're cheating on their production and they're exceeding too much. And, you know, you got to get a bunch of diverse people to agree. But the idea is to try and stabilize the price of oil. And, you know, interestingly enough, if you read The Prize, fabulous book, highly recommend. Oh, yeah. You know, Daniel Jurgen talks about like the Texas Railroad Commission, you know, part of why it's so powerful today is because the boom and bust cycle of people finding these fields, overproducing, going broke, then there being shortages. Like the Texas Railroad Commission set production quotas and the goal was just to basically stop these crazy cycles and stabilize production. And so as, you know, we feel sort of subject to it because it's such a huge amount of the price of oil, people have been trying to figure out how to balance the price of oil and gas for that matter for a really long time. And there's a lot of eyes on OPEC and what they're going to do and how they're going to do it and, and if they even meet their quota. So a bunch of the conversation now is that some of these countries, even though they have the quote unquote allocated capacity that they're allowed to produce haven't. And so the question is with $100 oil, are they out of production? You right. know, what's it going to take to even meet their, because with the price where it is, you'd argue OPEC might come back and say, you know what, we don't want this to hurt the economy. So we're going to produce more. But if people can't, other than speculation and kind of their claims, it may not prove out. Right. Anyways, there's a lot of eyes on OPEC and what they do and how they make those decisions. But it's a huge factor and something a lot of people talk about, but that OPEC plus really matters too, because 
Russia is such a huge producer. Yeah. You know, in the United States, we don't have any of this, right? The price of oil is what the price of oil is. If you want to produce it and you have the rights to do it, you produce it. No government entity is going to tell you to stop. Right. So it's a different market, but the U.S. hasn't had as much influence, you know, prior to the shale revolution, they really didn't have anywhere near that level of influence as, as they do now. Yeah, no, that's a good point. There's a lot of, you know, history behind OPEC and I encourage anyone. And again, I don't recall a lot of it, but I have terrible memory, but looking back, there's a pretty significant history in that book, the prize, I think they kind of go over like OPEC and the cartel and how it like really how they truly influence oil prices and oil markets, right? Yeah, I mean, you have to keep in mind that before this, it was the Seven Sisters, as they called them, but it was the big international oil companies that had that basically controlled the production on the land of the countries that were, you know, predominantly colonialized. Right. So, like Saudi Aramco, Aramco, Arabian American Company, right? So, like, basically, it came to a head where these international oil and gas companies were. It was. Locals saying, look, we're going to make our own oil company. We're going to control our own prices. You're not going to decide these things for us. And they took control of those things in their own country. And now if you want to work there, you've got to follow their rules. But there's a huge history of both that kind of transition slash backlash. You know, OPEC, I think it was set up in 1973. But you just think about the geopolitics, lots of things going on then and to this day, which you know, yeah. led to an energy crisis here in the U.S. when OPEC embargoed oil against us. That's when a, the last wave of alternative energy investment was all because of that. Mm. We're just now having another wave, but it just proved how dependent we were on oil and gas. And yeah. anyways, a fascinating history. I really suggest you read the book and not take my jumbled version of it to heart. But well, that's um, a pretty good summary. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you mentioned, you know, geopolitical events, which again, Oil prices are, you know, that's one of the main contributing factors is geopolitics because a lot of it can be supply disruption or, you know, in OPEC's place, they can flood the market if they want to, you know, whatever for yeah. their own purposes. But Matt, talk a little bit about geopolitical events, you know, beyond my sort of short version there. I mean, I think the most interesting thing is when we talk about kind of the macro thing, you know, when you hear that, you know, there was a such and such in this place that the price of oil is going up, the Iraq war or something, you're like, okay, there's a lot of oil there, you know, everybody knew about that. But having lived in a number, particularly visited and just kept an eye on a number of countries, there's a lot of stuff that doesn't make the news, especially the American news. Mm. And so, you know, it could be as, you know, right now there's as there has been, but there's been a serious amount of unrest in Libya where they keep shutting in a bunch of their production because there's infighting and someone will take control of a certain sector of the field and close it in and no one can export. And it's a couple hundred thousand barrels of oil. It's not small. You know, I'm trying to think there are just a couple of those that you don't hear about even, you know, in Norway, like their labor laws are very, very strong. Their unions are very strong. And people go on strike a lot in Norway. Okay. And as much as it is an advanced Western country, I mean, there are things like that that happen that might make a little headline on a oil and gas website, but they can be significant disruptions when margins are tight. Yeah, Nigeria, I mean, I was in Nigeria for five weeks. And I can't tell you a day that something didn't catch fire. <laughs> I mean, there it's it's Jeez. unfortunate, but there was just so much unrest. There were so many things going on that just didn't seem to make the news. And, you know, I was in a separate kind of compound area and there's nothing to do. So I'd have like binoculars and I would look and try and see what was going on both in the city, but also in the port. 
and you could look up the ship numbers and stuff, kind of oh, see wow. what was going back and forth. But it was just crazy. It was like, wow, that didn't make the news, but it, no doubt, like, Nigeria is producing less oil today than it was yesterday. And so I think a lot of these things, like, yes, we know the, we hear about the big events, right? Yeah. But there are these other things that happen. And when the margins are thin, look at, you know, Venezuela. Here's another one. So think about Venezuela and their production has been devastated. Yeah. Right. And Venezuela is sitting on one of the world's largest reserves, but it's all heavy oil. Well, guess what? All of the U.S. refineries are set up to process heavy oil. Mm. So one of the big issues is that, you know, where do we get other heavy oil stock? Russia. You know, we can get a like WTI is light. So when you need some of those heavies and, and some of those other things, great place to get them might be Canada from the yeah. you know, tar sands. But if only we had a pipeline, you know. But we import like out of all our entire importing, isn't like over 50% come from Canada? Yes, a ton of it does. It just goes back to like efficiency and cost because it comes in on rail cars instead of pipelines and, uh, you know, okay. just stuff like that. But all that being said, like it could even be that it's what's happened in Venezuela. Not only has it just taken them out of factoring into any level of oil production, but even the type of oil they produce is valuable to the refineries in the U.S. So and maybe I've heard this and I forget, but why are all the refineries or a good portion of them here in the U.S.? set up to refine heavy oil versus like what we produce? Is it because they were built before like the shale revolution or? Yeah, I mean, a lot of them were set up then. And then there's a lot of things you can make other things with the heavier materials, right? So it's not just, it's if I'm only making gasoline or whatever, okay. But when you crack crude oil, it breaks up into a bunch of different things at different ratios, depending on what it's made of. And so there's a lot you can do to adjust your refineries or whatever for, but really, you know, a heavier oil feedstock when, you had one of the largest reserves in Venezuela, and then you had this huge reserve in Mexico, and both of them have, you know, almost dropped to nothing. At a point in time, it made a lot of sense, especially when they weren't able to refine their own, you know, crude oil either. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that makes sense. Another one, too, that a lot of people have been watching, you know, I'm sure over time here is the exchange rate, and especially the U.S. dollar and its strength. And there's a bit of a correlation there between oil prices and the U.S. dollar, Matt. So if you could, sir. Well, I mean... For now, at least. And, you know, the U.S. dollar has been the world's reserve currency, right? So the thing is, the price of oil may go up in dollars, but it could just be our currency getting weaker. So it's, oh, my gosh, the price of oil's up. And it's, well, this is mainly due to exchange rates and that sort of thing, which goes back to, you know, Brent being more expensive. So, like, it's not just our ability to acquire it, but the benchmark is inherently in U.S. dollars. And so the value of the dollar is directly correlated to what someone is going to pay for that. And so it could be seemingly cheap or seemingly expensive, depending on your exchange rate with the dollar. Ah, makes sense. And, you know, we could probably talk more about that as well, but for all extensive purposes, you know, and then when our dollar is higher too, for, you know, purchasing oil, if our dollar is higher, doesn't it make it a lot harder for others to, you know, want to buy oil from like over the market. I mean, yeah. So like our dollar's higher, so it takes them more of their currency to be able to buy a barrel of oil, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I mean, there's that sweet spot. Just, I mean, we've kind of danced around it, but I think we all agree that there's a good price of oil. Mm-hmm. If it's way too low, that's generally bad because investment stops and people lose their jobs and right. it's difficult to sustain things. And then there's underinvestment. If it's too high, we all know that that can be fun for a little while until the bubble pops. 
<laughs> and so, you know, you want something that's, I don't know the definition. I don't have a dollar number in my head, but a number where everybody says, okay, I can afford to do this. The economy isn't going to slow down because energy is too expensive. People can prosper and it is worth investing in finding and maintaining what we've got. Right. And some would argue that above, like, interesting, you know, so my mother-in-law, she texted me the other day and she said, oh, it looks like oil's getting close to above 100 and it's so expensive for me to fill up my gas tank. But like, this is a good thing, right? If it keeps going higher. And so I was like, well, kind of, but not really. Like, it's good in the short run, but, you know, it's, again, it becomes more volatile and it could pop. And so, yeah, I would think most, you know, there's a large sort of different general population thing, like higher oil, better, like for oil companies and they're making all this money. And some would argue that's not a good thing. And so like, again, my, you know, two cents is like, I think, you know, in talking to a lot of customers and stuff like that, if we could somehow balance around between 70 and 80, 85, maybe like that seems to be a good price, but it never stays there. <laughs> you no. know what I mean? Like anyone who's watched oil prices since the beginning of time, it's like, it never just stays in one spot and everyone's happy. Cause yeah, there's a lot of influence and as to, you know, yeah, as we can see here, there's a lot of factors that play into this. And again, like I've only, I think I've taken like two economics classes, but it's so fascinating. And the cool thing about technology nowadays is there's so much access to information. So if anything that we talked about today that interests somebody, you could probably spend 50 hours on YouTube learning about it and then go reading about it. And, you know, a lot of people offer up some really good information. But anyway, so going back to, you know, talking about oil prices and, and what that really means for us. I mean, at the end of the day, we're here because oil prices are high enough to sustain drilling. So, mm. Matt, you know, what else? I mean, how is this all tied back to us and why are we so tied to oil prices? Well, I mean, you know, it goes back to the big investment cycle, right? Higher prices mean that people say it is worth drilling another well. It's worth taking on another rig. And so Josh Young with Bison Interest, he's been on our podcast a couple of times and He's pointed out that, you know, we probably don't have enough rigs to even sustain what we're producing right now, yeah. let alone grow it. So at some point, the price needs to be high enough that somebody says, hey, this is a good investment. I will put my money here because I know I will get a good return or I can expect a good one. You know, conversely, we know that, you know, when the price of oil drops, there tends to be less activity. And I think that's the hard part for us is we just want it to be good enough that we can all, you know, put our heads down and work. Yeah, Because the thing is, $120 in oil is fun for a little while, but then 80 feels low. And when you, you know, when you're built out and you got the people to, you know, move and shake and make, you know, make production at that, what happens? Now you got a surplus of people like that stinks. Yeah. So we don't like that, but we like stability. But if you want to think about kind of an investment time horizon thing, right? People want to put in money and they want to get the largest return possible over the shortest period of time. But some of the biggest projects require lots and lots of money, but they have huge returns. So like you look at what's going on in Guyana, right? Like huge oil field discovered there. They're producing a ton, but like they spent billions to find that, to put in the production facilities. Yeah. It's in a remote area. Now they got to get to market you know, a lot of that stuff was initially handled out of Trinidad because there wasn't any infrastructure. And so now it's been localized. But the fact is, you put in billions, now you're trying to get many billions back. <laughs> yeah. And it's big risk, but big reward, right? But your investment horizon is like 20 years. The price of oil tomorrow doesn't necessarily affect you other than you need enough money in the meantime to keep the business running. Yeah. However, if you look at, you know, particularly the unconventional wells that many of us are involved in, they're pretty easy to shut off. And, you know, I, I think we learned that 
you know, it was amazing how fast things were able to contract last time around, which, you know, it, I used to do a lot of deep water stuff and deep water wells take six months to plan, yeah, cost a hundred million dollars to drill. And so a lot of the deep water stuff, that was things even in 2014 or really, you know, when the downturn in 2014 hit, what you really saw is that deep water was still going for quite a while because everybody had signed their rig contract for a year and all this other money was already laid out on the table you couldn't get out of. Right. And then that stuff shut down. Shale came back quickly when the prices recovered, but then the deep water stuff has remained kind of, you know, dead and it just, they need to be convinced that they're going to have these higher prices to justify these big investments over a longer time horizon than drilling a shale well. Right. You know, have you heard, I mean, I, I can't really say that I have, but have you heard of operators going back into the Gulf now that oil prices are coming back around? I did see, I think there was a offshore drilling contractor that said they're going to take some cold stack rigs and bring them back out. I forget who I it think was. I Transocean, yeah. Transocean, okay. So it would be wrong me to say just because I'm not as engaged with that, but a lot of that stuff went overseas. I think a lot of it as well, what you're starting to see the return of is, you know, there's the exploration where you spend a ton of money and or like a brand new commissioning of a billion dollar platform. You're not seeing that, but what you are seeing is kind of the, hey, we're going to drill a couple more wells here and tie it back to an existing platform, or we're going to work over a couple of wells that like it's time to bring back some production. Yeah. So I am hearing stories of that, which is more than nothing, but it isn't, you know, there's five drill ships coming in and because a lot of those, what they try and do is they try and lock in the rate for three or four years, right? Yeah. Hundreds of thousands of dollars a day. So you got to be pretty convinced there and that'll come. I think it just, it's much slower. Right. And I I mean, the other thing that you think about the skill sets required to do deep water, you think about how hard we have finding people now. Trying to find good offshore hands would be, I imagine few and far between nowadays. Experienced people that want to go back into the business. Yeah. You know, between you look at what the hurricane did to Fushan, there's just a lot that at least in the Gulf of Mexico, you know, it could be a while. Yeah. But I know of areas that, you know, West Africa, Australia, I heard some stuff picking up, which I thought that was never going to come back. Yeah. So I think we're seeing hints of it. But yeah. yeah. Anyway, so the price of oil, it makes the world go around, certainly makes our world go around. (laughs) Yeah, it does. Well, again, appreciate for all the listeners out there, you know, staying tuned and and listen to us, hopefully educate. and, And if not, maybe just refresh some memories and Again, if you have any questions or thoughts, you know, if you have something specific that you would like us to cover with regards to, you know, anything macroeconomic wise, you know, Matt knows a lot of people. I know a few. And so, you know, it'd be cool to have a conversation with someone. You know, we've had Josh on for the listeners who haven't been listening for a while. Josh Young with Bison Interests. We had him on and and he is super dialed in when it comes to macroeconomics. And he also has a great Twitter handle, puts out a lot of good content if you want to kind of follow along for someone. Again, and, you know, Listen to a few people because not everyone, you know, nobody has a crystal ball that's 100% accurate, but it's cool to see people in there that are in the weeds, like just studying this stuff in the day to day in and day out to kind of hear what their thoughts are. But again, at the end of the day, it's, it's why we're here. Oil prices, you know, drive operators to want to produce. And in order to do that, you need to drill wells. So we're happy when oil goes up, but too high, you know, kind of gets a little bit hairy and we'll see how things go. We're tickling 100 and, you know, we'll see what happens. Yeah. And I mean, the other thing we'll probably have to do an episode on is just we get a a lot of our drilling fluid chemicals 
it takes energy like crude oil to transport them around. Yeah. Many times they're refined products. Yeah. They might even be plant-based and require a natural gas-based fertilizer. And so just like it costs more to make steel casing, there's a lot in the chemical world that's driven by these prices just as much as the price themselves. Yeah. So that's an episode for a future date. Yeah. But it's one that we should cover. It for makes sure. the world go round. Yeah. No, absolutely. All I can say. Yeah, it does. Well, all the listeners, thank you so much for the support. Share the show. Hit us up on LinkedIn. Matt and I are on there engaging with the audience. And again, if you have any questions, hit us up at the Flowline Podcast at AESFluids.com. Until next time, take, take care. care. Of it. Thanks for listening. Please tune in next week for another exciting episode of the Flowline. And remember, may your returns always be full and your trips always smooth. Views expressed in this program belong to participants and not their employees. The program is for informational purposes only and cannot take the place of seeking professional advice. Copyright AES Drilling Fluids.